Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to our spooktastic programming for the month of October. That's right, Horrifying Classics 2021. This year's theme, Contemporary Horror, aims to introduce notable horror novels from the last few years, especially debut horror novels, which may one day become horrifying classics. Today's novel is Tide Pool by Nicole Wilson. It fits into the Lovecraftian or dark horror genre with a historical sci-fi twist. about the author. Reading about Nicole Wilson, and all my sources as always are linked at the show notes at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the notes for this episode. Reading about Nicole Wilson, she writes a lot. This is her debut novel, so this is maybe our first debut novel of the Horrifying Classics series this year. And Wilson chronicles not only the writing of this novel, but the advertising for it, the marketing for it on her blog. So she's very prolific as a blogger. There's archives of years of her writing on her blog. And she has this aptitude for short story writing that I discovered by looking through her website and her blog and what's interesting to me is that she has just again this aptitude this amazing skill for short story writing and she decided to take that to the long form with this novel i've linked a short story called turn all things to honey in the description i super enjoyed reading that and it gave me more insight into not only her writing but her style So it was helpful for me to understand where she's coming from with this debut novel, what kind of a background she has as a young writer, and I'm interested to see what she will continue to produce and what formats she will be drawn to in the future. For example, I'd be interested to know if she will ever consider doing a short story collection. A lot of her short stories, as I said, are shocking and they're interesting um, and very well written. I think the pacing and the style of the short stories are so fitting uh, to her own writing. And I was, I will admit, more creeped out by her short stories than I was by the novel, but we'll talk about my own baggage and thoughts with this novel in a minute. Lovecraftian Horror. There's an essay by Pete Rollick in the description about Lovecraftian horror, which is something that is really not defined. It's really something you have to dig hard to get a clear definition of, especially if you, like me, before this episode, before this year, were relatively unfamiliar with Lovecraftian horror as a subgenre of horror which is, as we talked about in the first Horrifying Classics 2021 episode, 
a subgenre of fiction <laughs> or speculative fiction rather, which is a subgenre of fiction. There's kind of this like nesting of genres that occurs with horror in particular. And Lovecraftian horror is certainly a big subgenre. It's one of the more notable, one of the more delineated subgenres within horror. Essentially, Lovecraftian horror comes, as the name suggests, from H.P. Lovecraft, who was a writer not only of horror and scary type fiction, but also sci-fi. He did a lot of writing in terms of letters that he's well, well known for. He did a lot of genre hopping, as it were. H.P. Lovecraft, his past is similar to Edgar Allan Poe's in the respect that his father, at least, dies early. There's, as he grows up with his aunts and his mother, a mismanagement of money, of the estate. He grows up in the Northeast, much like Poe. And his foray into writing and also into fiction is very... It's tricky, but it's really interesting. So it seems like he writes as a hobby or writes on the side somehow, and then sort of lets that stream trickle off. He lets the door close. He writes this hate piece of hate mail, essentially, because he's very much into reading a lot of the popular magazine publications at that time, which included a lot of writing. So I think of like the New Yorker as one of the holdovers from the typical magazine style at that time, uh, the time that H.P. Lovecraft was alive. He writes this piece of hate mail against this popular love story type column by this author, and that piece gets published. And he's he writes it, I believe, in prose or some sort of poetry. So it's a beautiful piece of hate mail. <laughs> if that's uh, not too much of a stretch. And from there, he essentially starts writing amateur fiction. And he, he I, I think that piece mo most of all explains how he got into genre hopping. Sort of his foray into writing, as I said, was pretty serendipitous. And from there, just starts a more active writing career. So very notable origins, I think, from this author who ended up being so influential not only to horror, but to sci-fi, as I said, and to other genres. H.P. Lovecraft only lives until 46, so that's also a notable correlation with Poe. Uh, they're both very young and quite prolific when they die. Going back to the essay by Pete Rollick, he talks about cosmicism as a core tenet of Lovecraftian horror or Lovecraftian fiction. And he says this, quote, the hallmarks of cosmic horror include, one, the majority of humanity does not recognize its own insignificance, the indifference of the universe or its true nature. Two, individuals often detached from society can gain perspectives that allow them to glimpse reality, but this often leads to insanity. And three, regardless of the knowledge or abilities gained, the protagonist has little hope of affecting the course of events or of revealing all that has been hidden, unquote. 
So I pulled this quote out relating to cosmicism, not only because of the core part of cosmicism in Lovecraftian fiction, but because these describe tide pools so well. <laughs> Especially the first one, the majority of humanity does not recognize its own insignificance, the indifference of the universe or its true nature. Tidepool is a lot about this feature of nature over humanity, how we don't understand what is actually going on in the world, how we don't really have a palette for. We think we can control things that we actually can't control. So there's a lot of themes of this naturalism almost in this particular novel. And I found it interesting that cosmicism could be applied in so many different ways, especially in sci-fi. So it makes sense to me that this particular novel, aside from being truly Lovecraftian in its style, definitely Lovecraft's uh, writing style is very influential in the Lovecraftian novel as well. But also these elements of a, almost a mixture of genres. Pacing. This novel, like the other novels, I should mention, <laughs> like many of the other novels, I talk about pacing in the two Patreon-only novels that we reviewed for this month on Patreon. Those are linked on the homepage of the website. Uh, you can access them. Literally, they're one of the first blocks of text on the homepage. I talk about pacing there, and it's, it's so similar in a lot of these novels. The novel starts off quite slow and then starts speeding up maybe two-thirds of the way through. I would love, honestly, for a book recently to doesn't have to be a horror novel necessarily, but I'd love to read a book that starts off fast and dies away in a trickle. I think that would be so compelling and so new, <laughs> especially since we've been looking at pacing this whole month and it's been, while interesting, a bit repetitive. Let's do a passage analysis of this novel it's from pages 86 to 87. This is when the novel starts speeding up in a meaningful way. So this is probably about halfway through the novel, maybe a little earlier. And it's the first time we really get a glimpse of some of the mysteries behind what's going on in Tidepool and what's transpiring with all of uh, the characters, the odd characters, what's transpiring with this mystery of this missing man, and we'll do a plot summary after this. Quote, Ada Oliver had never particularly cared for Al Swenson. He was rough and crude, and he treated both her and Quentin with fairly concealed disdain. But she had liked his daughter, the cheerful and friendly Ruthie, well enough. The poor girl was polite to her and kind to Quentin, and she hadn't deserved what that dead man had done to her. When Ada learned that the fisherman had been foolish enough to return to Tidepool, she'd formed her plan. Lucy was hungry and the lords below had to be appeased. The torso Miss Hamilton and Quentin had spotted was a message that Ada understood even if no one else did. It had all worked out perfectly. 
Lucy rose from her meal, approached Ada, and bowed her head. You may go for a swim, Lucy, but leave your clothing close by in case someone comes looking for that man. Lucy wriggled free of the dress she wore. The hat and scarf had already fallen away as she slaughtered the fisherman. Ada watched the moonlight illuminating Lucy's body as she ran from the water and dove in. The dead man still lay in the sand, his face shredded almost beyond recognition, and his torn throat oozing blood that looked like dark syrup in the moonlight. After another careful glance around, Ada moved, removed her own clothing. She approached the dead fisherman, her pale, naked body glowing in the night. Although the fisherman was a fair bit heavier and taller than Ada, she lifted him up as easily as if he were a newborn infant. She carried him into the ocean, and she continued walking as the salt water closed over her head. As she walked further into the murky brine, they approached. Their eyes glowed bright green in the gloom. As more of them gathered round her, she released the body of the fisherman. Tentacles and claws snatched the corpse away from her. She watched until the lords disappeared. Back on the beach, she stood in the moonlight and concentrated. The water pouring out of her hair and the droplets running down her body began to evaporate, sending up a mist. Ada stood still until her hair and body were completely dry. She dressed herself and then summoned Lucy, who surfaced in the ocean, swam towards the shore, and emerged on the sand a few seconds later. Ada redressed Lucy and made sure to conceal Lucy's face with the scarf and the hat. Together, they returned home, unquote. Again, that was pages 86 through 87 of Tidepool by Nicole Wilson. What an interesting passage, right? And this is the first really time. There's lots of cues before this, of course, and there's background and there's tips and tricks that the main character pulls up along the way, but this is the first time that we get a glimpse, and I think the image of Ada Oliver coming out of the ocean and the water just evaporating in a mist off of her, I think that's so, uh, what a beautiful image, and also one that's so creepy <laughs> in, in some ways, and one that really resonates throughout the novel as something that's representative of the kinds of descriptions that Nicole Wilson includes. I really enjoyed the way that this passage revolved and kept sort of revealing the dead fisherman. The dead fisherman is present throughout the passage, of course, but it's almost like he keeps coming back into the frame, <laughs> like the mysterious beauty of these figures, Ada and Lucy Oliver, steals away from the image of the fisherman just enough, and then he gets brought back up again into the passage, and it's sort of this interruption, almost, of this fisherman again and again in the passage, and the passage itself doesn't, to me, have very fast pacing. It's a complete passage of description, um, there's maybe that one line of dialogue when Ada looks at Lucy and allows her to go into the ocean for a swim. But, so it's slow in that regard. There's, it's dense. There's information there. And it's also shocking information, though. So that, to me, speeds up the passage a bit because you're 
reading and you're piecing together the elements of this creepy town and this creepy lady and her daughter for the first time and that's so interesting and that's you know from a reader perspective that's so cool to go through in terms of a general plot summary of this novel there's a man who goes missing and this is in probably the 1800s it's a historically based novel there's a man who goes missing from a big city he goes missing in Tidepool, the last place he's been seen. He is the son of this wealthy business developer type person. And they want to develop Tidepool into a seaside resort town and bring tourists there and increase the economy there and really make it nice and pretty. However, the town is creepy. There's really, there's really no socioeconomic action going on in this town. There's really no industry, nothing notable that's producing any meaningful money in this town so far. The townspeople are dressed in these faded out clothes. It's creepy. It's like a ghost town, except people live there. The buildings are collapsing. It smells like rotting fish everywhere in this town. There's, it's the kind of small town where there's only one inn, one stables, that kind of thing. When the man goes missing, his sister, Sorrow Hamilton, comes to try to find him. And she's just this stunning example of a female character at this time. I really did enjoy Sorrow as a character. She is independent, she's educated, and of course this was the exception, not the rule, during this time. So she travels by herself for the first time in search of her brother. She's very loyal. Her brother's best friend, Charlie, ends up coming after her, and they team up, essentially. They become a duo to try to find Charlie. The lead suspect here is Ada Oliver, this creepy rich lady who comes to this town and she has just such an interesting relationship with all the townspeople. They revere her, they respect her, and they also fear her to a certain extent. She has a closer relationship with the innkeeper and his wife and it's yeah, it's quite strange. She, again, has a... She's very wealthy, and yet she lives in this town. She dresses like she is from a different time. There's lots of cues into her that are unsettling, and some of them you can't put your fingers on when you meet her at first, and she's, you know, very charming beside that. So... Prime suspect, Ada Oliver, her brother, Quentin, also very odd. Quentin takes to Sorrow right away, though, and he ends up saving her life in on several occasions, really. It's not long into Sorrow's stay in Tidepool when body parts start washing up on shore, and as we just read in the passage, part of that 
is definitely Ada Oliver's signal and her connection with these things called the Lords, which live in the ocean right off of the shoreline of Tide Pool. And as the short story goes on, as these things, the body parts, the weird weather, the fact that Sorrow can't seem to leave Tide Pool, no matter what she tries, no matter what she does, she's always prevented from leaving this town. All these symbols culminate and the realization on her end that there are these sea creatures, sea monsters basically, that reside underneath the shores and they've made a deal with Ada Oliver. And the deal is that she sacrifices an individual or two every so often as they request and they won't completely take over the shoreline and destroy the entire town's population. So Ada Oliver really is the key to keeping the town safe in a twisted sort of way and we see here that she sacrifices the fishermen. There's a whole backstory there. So it's it's a dark plot, definitely has those elements of cosmicism that we talked about earlier, this sort of like indifference of the universe or its true nature. I'm quoting from the Pete Rollick article. And right number three here from the Rollick article, regardless of the knowledge or abilities gained, the protagonist has little hope of affecting the course of events or of revealing all that has been hidden. And there really is some of a sense of that too. Like we don't have a full history of the Lords. We get a very brief overview from uh, one of the innkeepers takes Sorrow to a little makeshift museum basically about the Lords. So we don't get the whole backstory. We don't get a sense of, of clarity around that even at the end of the novel when, spoiler alert, the lords do rise because someone kills Ada Oliver. So we don't even really have a full sense of, you know, for example, if the lords are in other places where there's bodies of water. Um, and I actually really enjoyed the end of the novel with regard to pacing because it does, it slows down slightly now that I really reflect on it. And it follows different. There's different cues into different characters throughout the novel. So it's not just from one narrative perspective exclusively. So we do get a lot from Sorrow, obviously, but we get from her brother in the beginning. And we also get some from Quentin at the end. And Quentin realizes that Sorrow has become an author and she's chronicled her stories from Tidepool. And he realizes from researching her that she has moved to Arizona at the end of, of the novel, partially because Arizona has no water. So Sorrow becomes mentally ill for a time after, not mentally ill, she becomes essentially distraught because of her, she has trauma. She becomes distraught because of her experiences at Tidepool after she returns from the city, she does make it out alive when the lords rise, but there is a sense of she will never be the same after her experiences there. Character. 
find the relationships between characters to be really interesting. This isn't something I'll get into at length, but while I did like Sorrow, I think that Sorrow's strength as a character was her ability to field the different relationships around her. So she has a relationship with this best friend, Charlie, who it's suggested that they might court and Charlie ends up dying like after their first kiss, which I found to be hilarious, very timely. <laughs> and there's this almost connection between Sorrow and other characters that really propels a lot of the plot floor forward. So her hatred of the innkeepers turning to acquiescence in some ways and her fierce ardent love for her brother and her loyalty to her brother, her fear and trepidation around her father but also her love and loyalty to him. All of these complex emotions manifest in the plot as a really interesting device that propels it again and moves it forward in some cases and stagnates it in others. And Sorrow has this amazing ability as a character to field and manage all of those relationships in, re in relation to what's going on in the novel. So that's something that I found to be really interesting and very masterfully done for this debut novel. What I liked, scares. I'm going to get to my scare rating first and then I will explain my scare rating for this book is a 2.5 out of 5 scares. The reason why is like The Toll by Cherry Priest, our first horrifying classic for the year, this novel is not a novel that's made for me as an audience member. Anything though that gets people reading, as I often say, I will champion, I will stand behind something that catches someone's interest enough to get them reading. I personally have a really hard time with sci-fi and fantasy books. I think sci-fi YA books are easier for me to digest in some ways, and maybe in a future continuation of the summer YA series we'll get into some of my old sci-fi YA books, <laughs> but in terms of hard sci-fi or things with fantastical elements, it's really hard for me to grasp and to really vibe with. So that was a big contributing factor to me not being the ideal audience for this book. I did really enjoy the historical elements of the book. I think it was so interesting to have this sort of Victorian kind of quality. It's, it's set later than the Victorian era, but that kind of dark historical quality to the book I found to be really cool, very reminiscent of Jessica Verde's debut novel, The Hollow, also her newer novels. I do like this book more in retrospect than when I had just finished it. I think that when you start to reflect on any book, and this book in particular, more elements come out after you finished, after the story is done, after Sorrow moves to Arizona, <laughs> um, that really highlight how 
well-written it is as a whole. And for me, it was an easier read for sure, but it still had a lot of thoughtful elements about it that led me to continue processing it after I read it. So it's a good indicator for sure. Also, this book is so creative. There's so many different moving pieces in it, not only with regard to the genre, with regard to the pacing and the characters, but really in regard to the novel as a whole. When you look at it from a retrospective viewpoint, there's so much going on. There's this dark element of this brother going missing and knowing that he's probably dead. And then there's the sci-fi slash fantasy kind of element of the Lords Below and what's going on with Ada Oliver. And then there's this romance kind of element with Charlie and Sorrow that doesn't get fully developed, but rather cut off. And that says a lot about uh, how the moving pieces are relating to each other and the dark element sort of takes over. So there's a lot to analyze. There's a lot to piece together, even after you've read the novel, as I said. So I would say just so many extra points for creativity and all the moving pieces that Wilson does a great job of moving us through and tracking through in a really compelling way. So even though my scare rating isn't so high because this novel did not scare me, I don't think that was the point either. In summary, congratulations to Nicole Wilson on her debut novel. Very complex in some ways for a debut novel. All of my sources for this episode, as always, are linked in the show notes at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes. I would highly recommend checking out some of Nicole Wilson's work, especially her short stories. I really enjoyed them. I found them really creepy. And if this novel interests you as well, I would give it a read. Our next horrifying classic is Come With Me by Ronald Malfi. I will see you all next week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.